You're listening to Brave New Words. Uh, I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. And I'm Del. So, hello, everyone. Hello. Um, so, on today's show, shall we talk about things that are godly? If you want. Why not? Let's talk about... Um, why not? So it kind of sounds like you made up your mind, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it doesn't matter what I answer. <laughs> Quite frequently talk about gods anyway. Yes, we do. Because gods and uh, gods seem to be cool. <laughs> so, uh, jingle. A jingle. Jingle. Let's have a jingle. Across the world, twenty-four hours a day. That was a jingle. It was a good jingle. I like the jingle. If, by the by, you want to insert your own jingle, you can. You can get in touch with us via the magic of social media. So we are on Twitter at uh, Radio Bookworm. We are on Tumblr as Radio Bookworm. We can find us uh, on as Brave New Words on the Facebooks. You can join our super secret book club, which is also Brave New Words. And this is probably other stuff on the internet. You can also find us on the com website, which is probably how you found us in the first place. You can also find us via the Wonky Spanner, which is the spanner that is wonky. So, um, shall we do a book? Shall we do a book? Shall we do a book? Shall we get straight into the whole book? Thing? Yeah, it kind of feels like that's why we're here. This is, this so is brave new, untested territory, this book thing. So... I've got, a, I've got a posh book. It's a posh book. It's it a posh book. It is a very posh book. So this is from the Folio Society, whom we love. We do love. They always send you such beautiful, beautiful things. Um, this, is, this is a tea and popper biscuits book. Yeah. It, well, yes, it's a tea and popper biscuits Ooh, book. Ooh, it's, it's got that kind of felt, that, that lovely velvety cover. So we, this is where we do the thing where we, it's a, where we start with reading a book as a physical thing, rather than just yep. a... And you stroke it. Yeah. Well, you are stroking it. It's yes. As well. <laughs> to be fair, though, you can you, you the listeners could probably hear that being stroked. Then, like that's. Can you hear this? That's a fantastic radio. Yeah, Absolutely. I reckon you can hear it. That's what the book sounds well, like. We've got to engage all five senses here, Ed. Or in your cases, that happens anyway. But <laughs> okay, yes. I'm, Thanks. Thanks Ed currently has the book. And then Ross is sat next to Ed. I'm sat next to Ross. So I'm th- two. There's two people away from this book, and I can smell the book. So shall we explain what the book is? So it's Toad Crutchit's Small Gods. That'll be the fifth sentence. Let's leave that one. Uh, and we're using this as we're using the lovely Folio Society edition book as an excuse to talk about it because for ages we keep going. I, I keep comparing things yeah. to Small Gods. As we keep going. No, no, no. You, <laughs> any time we do a book that has any form of godly basis, Ed's first response is, "Is it as good as Small Gods?" <laughs> so we should, right? Okay, so let's start with the book itself. So physically, Bully Society have done the vision of Small Gods. They did Mort first, which is one of Terry Pratchett's most popular books. Then they've gone to the one of his other more, more popular books, which is Small Gods. Um, the cover is beautiful. It's a big felt thing, a lovely felt bound thing. And has a picture of brother holding a turtle, 
uh, in a kind of it's like a gothic illumination mm. style thing. It feels very kind of it's not Catholic, but it feels very Catholic. All the illustrations are by Omar Rayan, who did the uh, more illustrations oh, as cool. well. And you open it up, and the kind of the, the 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 lead page is a picture of an eagle holding a not a very happy turtle. <laughs> Um, and again, because it's a polio society book, the sound of it being being flipped. Um, yes, it's that, that, that lovely nice. creamy van, uh, vanilla smell for the synesthetics in the room. Um, and yeah, it's fantastic illustrations, beautifully mm. illustrated, mm. beautifully bound. Um, shall we actually talk about the actual book itself? But it's so pretty. It is very. Shall I hand that to you so you can have it? It's got a slipcase as well, a very nice slipcase with a picture of a turtle, obviously holding a church on its back, which is a very That's good. That's a metaphor. It is. It's a, it's a very good visual description of the, the whole thing. So this was the thirteenth novel, third individual story, as in, so it's the thirteenth book that he'd written, but not one that follows someone else's. World, if you see what I mean, because there's a the the there's a whole load of stuff like that. Um, he's not done that many individual stories, and I think a lot of us really like the ones where it's just a standalone pyramid. Is another one where yeah. Yeah, it's pyramid, and in a way, it's a lot like pyramids in the sense that it talks about society and religion. But whereas pyramids, it's more a series of really silly Egyptian puns. Um, it, the thing with pyramids and how should we explain the Discworld for anyone who doesn't know what it is? I think it's always safe, isn't it? Right. Okay. So Discworld itself, uh, Terry Pratchett's best known for the Discworld series. Um, the Discworld is a world of magic and wonders. It doesn't take itself too terribly seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone is sitting on the back of a. Right. Let's let me get this right. The Discworld is a disc. The disc sits on the back of four elephants. The four elephants stand on the back of a turtle that is swimming through space. Good, great artillery. Um, he he is a giant space turtle of a very rare species of giant space turtles. Um, and the themes of the Discworld books tend to parody um, existing fantasy stuff. Though as the series went on, because there's an absolute part of the books in the series... Uh, as the series continues, it became less of a parody and more of its own thing. Yeah. So I've heard it compared weirdly as a fantasy of The Simpsons. <laughs> it's, it's a long-running parody, and then stops becoming a parody and becomes its its own thing in its own right, mm. which it is. And perhaps it tends to talk about social issues and real-world issues through the lens of fantasy and silliness. Yeah. So, if, for example, if you want to talk about slavery, identity, and artificial intelligence, he introduces golems, for example, which is one of those things that... Yeah, right. he, he uses vampires to talk about alcoholism. Yeah, he does. addictions, mm. which is quite nice. It's quite clever. Metaphors everywhere. So, the, the plot of Small Gods is... Um, so, gods are a thing in the Discworld, and there's a load of them, and some of them, are, some of them are kind of well known and everywhere, and some of them aren't. Uh, so, for example, there's a god called Offler, who is a crocodile god. Mm-hmm. And because it's the disc world, and things tend to, the gods tend to, you have little gods that merge into other gods that then merge into other gods. So, Offler is this kind of Nile-style crocodile god, 
but he's gone long gone since mainstream. He's like a mainstream god, and obviously, yeah, he's sold out because he's absorbed all the other crocodile gods. Offla really likes sausages. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that's my favourite thing, Offla. Uh, and, you know, which is a reference to Punch and Judy. Uh, and, you know, Offla likes sausages because he's absorbed that aspect of the public perception of gods into his being. A small god is about the great god Om, um, who has this, this huge church. And it's kind of, you know, kind of, the, the garden, Omnia is a place that we haven't visited at this point. Yeah, no, we've only heard about it now, haven't we? Like It comes up every now and then, but we've not been. And it's a place in the desert that is far away, which is a good way of description, describing a British perception of where places like Jerusalem are. Because mm-hmm. for most of us, it's a place in, in the desert that's far away. Unless you've travelled, which many people haven't. Mm. So, so it's an obvious kind of, okay, well, it's a, it's a, it's a one god in a world that's mostly about pantheons so it's a monofaith and the see the thing is Om has been expecting to just you know manifest because he's Om and they've built these churches to him and they've built all of this structure to him and this huge political organised faith that preaches his name so he decides to manifest he's going to manifest as the most mighty thing he can doesn't work so he manifests as a turtle closest to his most powerful font of faith which is a guy called Brother who's a fairly simple minded chap or so it seems he's just tending the lettuce garden which is convenient because he is a tortoise <laughs> um, he hasn't manifested as a turtle he's manifested as a tortoise he's got no divine powers he can't make lightning happen, he can't smite anyone something has gone wrong and what's basically happened is this organised religion has forgotten about the important job about actually, you know, worshipping the god mm-hmm. and has become a political organ. It's all obvious, obvious kind of, it's an obvious metaphor for faith and belief and all the rest, but of course it is. Um, it's, you know, so, so brother, brother hasn't really learnt to read, he's not really smart, um, and he starts things start to change when Brother discovers um, local people who think. He discovers the town, or the place of a Uh He discovers a Phoebe philosophers. And again, Pratchett gets to have a pop at philosophy and, you know, people jumping out of the bath, screaming, you wicked, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. In that kind of silly way that Pratchett loves to, which is where he looks at it in a kind of slightly absurd, very satirical lens, and has a pop of, at the philosopher. So he meets um, Diddly Actos, um, which I can't I can't pronounce it, but you know Diddly Actos. I think in my head it was something like that. I'm pretty sure that I said Diddly Actos. Diddly Actos, which is just a great name. Uh, he meets all of these philosophers, starts to actually expand his mean uh, his, his his mind, as it were. I've just got that Diddly Actos two fingered. <laughs> And this uh, renegade philosopher, right, okay, well done, Terry. Um, now, of course, because it's an organised uh, religion, there's the Quisition. Not the Inquisition, the Quisition. Because they go out, you see, <laughs> and they explore. So they're not an Inquisition, they're more of an Outquisition, really. 
Um, what brother becomes exiled from? He has to basically run away, and what they discover is that um, they discover other small gods. Uh, he spends time in the desert. He becomes outcast. He gets lost, and he discovers that there are other godlike beings in the world that have been forgotten. That these worlds have been built uh, surrounding him. And without going into the full, because we've kind of started the plot. So the plot is about mm. a guy who's the only only point where this god can manifest, and the god kind of wants to get his powers back, wants to get his faith, faith back. And the book starts, if memory serves, with a wonderful point about eagles and a wonderful point about tortoises. Consider the tortoise and the eagle. Tortoise is a ground living creature, eagle isn't. The eagle has discovered. But what you can do is you can swoop down, grab a tortoise, fly it up. And the tortoise initially thinks this is a marvellous idea because he's discovered a new life skill. What a marvellously marvellous new friend he's discovered within the eagle. Until the eagle drops the tortoise. Because the tortoise, tortoise is of course full of delicious meat. Um, and once it smashes onto the ground, that, that inconvenient shell has been dealt with. Yeah... And as Pratchett points out in the opening of this book, at some point the tortoise will learn to fly. That's how evolution works. So this is a book about a tortoise learning to fly, or more accurately, this is a book about someone who is breaking out the stretches of organised thinking, organised faith and organised belief. And it has in fact learned to fly, learned to become themselves, learned to become who they are. And Brother, brother is a prophet. There's another prophet as well. There's another person who's decided politically to be a prophet. He is Orbis, and he is basically our quisitor, and he is our villain. He's also a very handy and convenient metaphor for the uh, concept of political ambition and using the tools that are presented with you for things that are not intended to be used for. Um, we also have the, the whole stab at the Inquisition. Uh, the real world Inquisition. There's a whole stab at organised religion um, because obviously we have Diddly Actos here. We have a whole tranche of stories and tropes about torture and trying to suppress ideas and knowledge. One of the things that the church has decided is that the world is round. Uh, to which Diddly Actos is like, "Oh, I could create you a marvelous system involving orbs rotating around other orbs. I can create as many balls as you want." <laughs> I believe I'm paraphrasing. Um, and of course Orbis and Chums and representing the organised faith of Om which of course doesn't believe in Om um, have decided to deal with people who are against their faith by strapping them to an enormous turtle and then you know heating that turtle up mm. and that sort of thing um, but spoiling the ending or the story itself there is a moment of where brother turns around and goes, wouldn't the world be a nicer place if we all just stopped and talked about it? Mm. It's worth pointing out that in the rest of the Discworld novels, the Church of Orm is kind of nice in the sense that they turn up at your house for a cup of tea, and if you don't are not into tea, they've brought the stuff with them, it's fine. Uh, and they have pamphlets. And they, they try... 
and yeah, Covent Garden. They pop round, say hello. Yes, mm. yes. Uh, is it a couple of visits? Vi- yeah, a couple of visit you with explanatory pamphlets, I think. It might be his full name. I always visit, it's short for someone. But... Um, there is a wonderful line in this where they're talking about the fact that the world of this world is in fact a pantheon. You shall not expose your god to market forces. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's brilliant as a, as a point. It's like, there is only one god. That's, that's competitive. Surely. And <laughs> um, Pratchett will, does return to um, the concept of small gods in various books. Monstrous Regiment mm-hmm. is one that is kind of significant um, as well, where he's talking about the idea of a spiritual force, spiritual energy thing. Um, and the gods in this, gods in, in Terry's world are either symbiotic or parasitic, depending. Yeah. And one of the points it makes about the formations of gods is that, you know, the first person to decide and give power to the god kind of forms it. And um, with Om, Om focused on the shepherd. The first person who believed him was the shepherd, which is unfortunate because the field next door was a goat herder. And goats are led. They're not shepherded, which is a different thing. Mm. And this would have been a different story. Um, is it one of Terry's best books? I would argue yes. Um, I am surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is what is your preferred uh, Terry Pratchett story? Oh, I'm just gonna I, I, I am still in the process of just reading them all. Um, I, I have yet to read most of them, but I have read significant numbers enough that I, you know, I like the stuff. I still have difficulty picking it one out. I do remember reading this book quite a while ago, and it's going to put it into its slipcase. It's made a fashion, uh, 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 satisfying whooshing sound as it's done. So, Mm. so you say? Yeah, I do remember reading this book uh, a a while ago. Um, I don't have my own copy of it, and maybe I should, maybe should get this copy of it. It looks, it looks good. Um, I think the ones I've actually owned tend to be the guards ones. Yeah, I re- I the really like the guard stories. Um, I really I I really like the witches stuff though. I think the the, the stories in Lankra are maybe maybe hedge it a little bit more for me. Um, it is difficult, and I think I'm a bit loath. But if I had to if I had to say one, I had a definitive favourite. I would probably pick witches abroad because I just love it and it makes me howl with laughter um but that that only hedges it a little bit above certain others like I love lords and ladies I love carpe jugulum I love the Tiffany aching books like I, I think for me small gods stand out as it's almost like it's not not a Pratchett book to me mm. because it is so different um, and whereas I I absolutely adore the um, the, the Witcher series um, the whole the whole when it's when it just it opens brilliantly with a, when shall we meet again well I can't do next Tuesday and <laughs> Terry was uh, involved in Pagan Faith when he was a younger man mm. I mean, he, he then became an atheist, which is quite often the, the path I have observed. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, you fall out of, fall out of organised religion, you go into alternative religion, 
you realise it's basically the same thing, but slightly less organised and slightly more tea. <laughs> um, and then you kind of decide it's all nonsense. And it's not an uncommon path. Not a path that I've taken, but, you know, it's... Um, and for me, you know, speaking as someone who was raised as Spanish Catholic, uh, a book about how the Inquisition and organised religion and structures and how it's all about structure. Mm. And, you know, we are this thing, so we're not that thing. You know, we are Omnians, we are not Ephibians, we don't believe that. There's no reason why we, why we shouldn't believe that. It's just so we can say we're this rather than that. Yeah. And it's, you know, bloody-minded humanity and how you can easily herd people with that uh, to, to maintain power and control. And that, that creeping suspicion that the people who are in charge of your organised faith don't believe in it. Um, yeah. It's just a convenient tool to power. Um, There's a sort of similar passion... I mean, the, I know people who value Jingo, for example, for similar reasons because of the just mm. the strength of the message involved in it. But Jingo, I mean, this is a standalone, whereas Jingo obviously builds on the guard character, builds on a lot of characters we've seen before. Well, so I don't know if it if it's as strong in that sense because obviously it's it's more continuous rather than this is it's a, a, you know a solid on its own. Jingo being the one about um, invading other countries. Yeah, we're going to well, no, we're going to war with Clatch over this other island. This is, you know, okay, no, the little island was the, was just the excuse for invading other countries, but yeah. Uh, and yes, it's, you know, it is about invading other countries and yeah. about cultural exchange. And how yeah, cultural I mean, the, the strong message of Jingo still being at the end of it, you know, truly give, you know, be, treat other people equally. Give mm. them the right to be bastards too, which is, among other things, but... Yeah, is Jingo, Jingo, in chronological order, Jingo's quite close to moving pictures isn't it there's not a huge number between those and if you think like moving pictures is kind of the kind of almost uh, how i don't i don't mean americanization but it is sort of about that idea of colonial colonial kind of of appropriation and stuff like the fact that these shopping malls and things just start materializing don't they and see that was also a Reaper Man idea, I think. But oh, am I thinking of that? No, no, it's, it's in, no, he goes back to it. Uh, yeah. Again, the, the idea of Parasite World okay. and Parasite mm-hmm. Things, because uh, it's movies and motion pictures, yeah, and um, it's kind of like that parasitic thing. And then, the, yeah, we, we get the shopping trolleys. which is Shopping some, trolleys! <laughs> which is like a baby egg version of malls and this sort of thing, <laughs> and that sort of weirdness. But it's, it's that slow build-up. Um, I have to say, when I first read Jingle, which again is similar to Small Gods in the sense that it's a, it's almost a polemic in places. Um, I felt the polemic was too strong in Jingle, right? In the sense that it's like I would just sat there going, "I know Terry, like like I know, yeah, like like I I, I know uh, cultural exchanges start with swords. Yeah, I know that. Uh, I, I understand. I don't. And yeah, he's very angry. And yes, it's something to be very angry about. Where his small gods feels gentler, even though mm. it really isn't. I mean, you know, it's it's much more cynical in places. Some of the lines are devastating. Some of the gags are devastating. Yeah. Um, there is a slight spoiler. Um, there, there is a there is a line where it's like, oh, we'll have to take the tiny guy off this, and it's like that's a direct reference to Christianity. It's a direct kind of stab. Uh, how faith is formed and yet the, I would argue that the Discworld is very pagan in feeling and ideology mm. um, 
and with small gods, it's kind of like this is how multi faith, this is how multi culturalism begins. Um, it's you know it should be about faith, it should be about the political power, it should be about this, and Pratchett gets people ultimately. Yeah, all his books are about people, um, which is it's also interesting because as you say, we keep we keep exp- we keep comparing it to other books about gods, and I don't think it's fair. To be honest, I shouldn't mm. do that. It's a naughty thing for me to do because mm. whereas this is specifically about faith, Percy Jackson isn't about faith. No. no, no one cares about faith and faith. No one worships four in the Marvel universe. No one wor- in in most. <laughs> yeah, it, go on. Yeah, but f- I mean, they're doing the ultimate comic books, but it's a four-way gag. You know, it's the yeah. Have you seen his arms? I'm told you're gonna worship that. You know, <laughs> uh, and that sort of thing. They they do it as a kind of four-way gag, but there is no church of four there is no you know there is no active heathenry ha- happening in the marvel universe despite the fact that the asgards are right over there and can sign autographs you know you can directly talk to your god in, in those worlds whereas in and, and yeah they manifest in this world but not everyone gets to talk to them mm. uh, and there's that whole the, the, there is a there is another god that turns up run towards the end who's just a small community god <laughs> and it's, there's about to be this massive god war between cultures and there's a fisherman who's just randomly turned up and he's just like in the wrong place at the wrong time and there's this huge war and he worships you know like a fish god or something who's got a name like pop 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 or something like one of those and he's just like the the, the, he's, the gods are chatting away in the you know in in heaven uh, I can't remember. what's it called again is it Dun- Dun- Dunmanifestin yes Dunmanifestin uh, they're, they're chatting away they're about to start playing the great games of God which seems to involve dice and explosions uh, <laughs> well yes there's the un- the unnamed um, Lady Luck goddess as well I mean there's last, mm. the last hero is another one where the gods seriously manifest I think she also has an effect in this, the last continent uh, yes or interesting times it's well, well it's a, it's a uh, rinse wind one it's that's so perhaps you can make lots of jokes about Dame Fortune. Yes. Uh, well, as you know, I'm, I'm very. I, I've heard them all. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> if you've got anything new, no, no, no don't write it. No. no, if you've got anything new, you please, please feel free. My Twitter handle is Ed uh, Ed underscore Fortune, and I'd be fascinated to hear fresh jokes about the Lady Luck, Dame Fortune, and anything else. I, I will even give you a small prize and possibly a small gift. Spoiler alert! My gift, the the gift I normally give to jokes about my surname is normally my contempt, which you can have for free. Um, We've learned lots of. We <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> but yes, um, yeah. Dame Fortune is in there, but yeah, it's that wonderful moment where he's just got like got a steak, and it's like I think your guy just wants to sell fish cakes. Uh, uh, <laughs> he wants to be involved in a god war, but um. I mean, we talked about James Lovegrove's Pantheon series a little while ago um, on this show, and that's a, that's another series about gods and all the rest of it. But in this, in in the Pantheon series, because it's meant to be kind of like the crime thriller, urban fantasy novels, the gods are just complete bastards mm-hmm. and have no need to be connected to humanity. And I think that's the mm. two. I think that's the two flavors you get, really, isn't it? Yeah. You kind of you get the kind of Pratchettian gods, where if people aren't involved, if if they aren't involved, they're people. 
mm-hmm. and they stop being a thing. So kind of gaming goes along similar lines, doesn't he, as well? Like, like if you think like American Gods, like that's the idea of everybody moved to America, they took all their gods with them, but after several generations, the these gods were not part of, of their their grandchildren's lives and things. And the fact that actually it's difficult to sustain yourself without worship. Um, so it's like, that, that's the idea that America cannot sustain gods because nobody, there, there isn't enough history there for people to continue that that worship. But they were, yeah, part of the part of American gods was also that their own gods, if you like, started to manifest, their own mm. you know, other vehicles of their faith. Gaiman is, is famously fascinated with gods. He does yeah. the... He's uh, just started on involving Norse gods, hasn't he? He wrote a Nancy boy Which after is... American Boys. No, okay, it's the I, same I, world. Yeah. Okay. It's the same way. It's one of the characters, isn't it? Like, well, it's, well, it's not one of the characters. It's an offshoot of one of the character stories from it, American Gods. It's the same sort of premise and setup. But in um, Sandman, we, we hmm. meet Bast. Uh, and Bast is... Is when we meet her in her dreams, she's this beautiful cat goddess, and she's you know she's flirty and seductive, and she tries to make she tries to make the the, the Lord of Dreams her Tom, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing, and generally tries to you know, and then we see her in the real world, and because she no longer has temples and churches, what she has instead is I think it's a little boy, uh, a little boy's cat has just died, and he doesn't know what to pray to, so he just prays to. Mm. And Bast hears the prayer, nice. and tries to make tries to make the life of the new cat that's been brought in to replace this cat a little bit easier, <laughs> uh, and, and that sort of thing. There is, uh, um, um, I, I found another tangent. What is it about writers are weird and creepy and cats? Because <laughs> seriously, because Pratchett, like, Pratchett changes mind on cats. Well, no, no, Pratchett changed Death's mind about cats because I think Death started the whole series. Um, where he'd just pluck one life out of a cat just because he could, you know, because he's got eight more, it's fine. And then he'd, as this, a couple of books later, when he properly manifested in, in Mort, he suddenly loved cats from that point mm. on. But yeah. he really liked because he well, they could see him. Again, Pratchett loves cats. H.P. Lovecraft loves cats. Cats. Gaming loves cats. What is it about cats? Is it, is it because of the cat's connection to the kind of the occult and the other world anyway? Like, if you think ancient religions had a re- had a reverence of cats um, the occult has a connection to cats um, well some of that's because well I don't know if it's because necessarily but um, cats can see in the dark so they can see more than we can so there's this possibly yeah. that connection and they're quite they're bitches aren't they so like yeah they're capricious they, they're cruel because they're like they make they, offerings they, they look like they're looking down on everything so they already look quite like important um i'm not i'm not very far in but i'm currently reading the hawkweed prophecy and um there's a connection to cats in that straight away um there's an easter egg with gibbons writing so if you're a doctor who fan and you've seen the doctor's wife um there's a wonderful moment where the tardis describes the doctor as you beautiful idiot Mm. which is how Gaiman describes his cats mm. <laughs> the TARDIS regards the Doctor as its pet 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, no, I can sort of see that because the doc, he, he does sort of wander in every so often. He doesn't know whether he wants to be in or out. He, want, he wanders in. <laughs> he, he, he wanders in every so often, bringing these little offerings, these little you know, sort of bloody offerings. You know, sort of thing. <laughs> you know, you you like this thing? It's like a mouse. Pet, you know, this is my pet. You've got pet. You've got me as a pet. This is my pet. Yeah, I can. There's, it, it, it extends quite far this one, and he's got more than one life. He's got he's got at least nine lives. Are we saying his assistants are his version of a dead mouse to the TARDIS, his owner? I'm saying it. I don't know whether it's good. Uh, it's a good analogy. Got you, but... you a present? Yeah. Well, it's still alive. It's fine. TARDIS <laughs> famously also dislikes some of the companions sometimes yeah. as well. Yes. I love 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 that episode. It's one of my absolute favourite Doctor Who episodes. I just. Oh, it's just beautiful. There's a again the tangent, but there's a wonderful scene H. P. Lovecraft. We've gone on the subject of cats for some reason, but there's a wonderful because scene. cats. Because yeah. is this not making the point a little bit? Yeah, well, practically an unadulterated cat as well, which is hilarious and fun. <laughs> uh, it was one of those one of those things where he wrote wrote it as a basically a Christmas throwaway book, and then of course when Pratchett became much better known, people were like, "I need the unadulterated cat because it says it's number one of his books and it had been long out of print." Um, which is you know delightful. It is delightful. Is it back in print? Yeah, it's very Excellent. much back in print. Um, but yeah, H.P. Lovecraft um, when he did the Carter Dream Stories, which are his better stories as far as I'm concerned. H.P. Lovecraft is not a very good writer, listener. He's not. He's got some great ideas, but he's not a very good writer. This is not. This is not a secret. Mm. But there's a wonderful moment where he's um, where the explorer is in the dreamlands and he's lost and he's about to be taken down by Zoogs because um, it's that sort of a thing and he gets rescued by by a cat of Ulfar and the cats of Ulfar like him and rescue him and mm. the reason they like him is because he likes cats in the real world and he he, he cared for, for, for an earth cat and, and helped it recover and the act of kindness is, is, is repaid in Dreamland and I kind of love that kind of just general cats as gods um, or the little gods but again Gaiman also did the Dream of a Thousand Cats which is one of my favourite Gaiman stories and a bare thousand cats can dream they can re- re- rewrite the world so so cats are in charge and um, people are playthings cats are endless sources of humour but you can't find a thousand cats to dream the same thing you can't get ten cats to do the same thing so yeah. you know good luck finding a thousand cats uh, and yeah yes, yeah, one of my favourite Gaiman stories but again yes gods and cats and cats sometimes the same thing but I think it's because you can you can personify a cat quite easily like ultimately when I was like oh cats are bitches like they have this look like basically from the way they hold they hold themselves we are like oh well if we anthropomorphize a mm. lot um, and you can carry that through and, and you can use it to make a point um, like Pratchett does it regularly and you say about like death didn't like cats and now death does like cats um, Granny Weatherwax does the same thing, really. Like, does okay. not asked about cats, and then Tiffany a- a- buys her a cat, and she pretends she doesn't like it. Like, she calls the cat you, so it would be like, you come here, <laughs> you go away, you do this. Um, but she loves the cat. Like, very, very quickly, does she enjoy the cat? Um, and you can you can make a cat human without having to make it human. Whereas like Gaspode gasp to humanize a dog the like it was given the ability to talk and human thought processes but cats you can quite quickly put a human aspect on a cat without changing anything about the cat 
or how it is or what it does and you can make them great like Grebo is great in Witches Abroad the bit where Grebo just eats a vampire because ultimately as far as he's concerned he's like yay bah <laughs> <laughs> yeah Gasport's interesting because Gasport is an exclusive project to talk about uh, power and command and control yeah. and, and how people um, how people relate in power structures mm-hmm. and also petty politics I can't yeah. remember which one it is but it's the one where there's a uh, there's, there's a leader of the wolves and he's talking about in his like chihuahua or something he's like, yeah. he's like he's a, men at arms yeah I was yeah, going to say is arms. that men at arms and he's like a lap doggy thing but he's decided that he's, he's romanticised wolves and Gaspar's like I've met actual wolves and they're not like that no. they're not and, and you know essentially he's the UKIP dog uh, this this little chihuahua and he's needing a like a, a you know a, a for all mankind and Gaspard who can speak has the ultimate dog power mm. yes which is where he can you know open his throat and and tell him off yes woof uh, give me it, a biscuit woof it's <laughs> well it's that well let's we... uh, not spoil it yeah um, <laughs> you know, that would be bad I've We've still got some shorter films, so I've got these in my hands. <laughs> We're talking about how pretty um, oh, yeah. Folio Society stuff is. Uh, so what I was going to do is I was going to throw this at Dell while she made a little happy sound. Because oh. um, it's... They, Stop they've throwing got, things at Dell. She got doesn't a, make happy sounds when you throw things at her. Well, they've got a catalogue. Um, the Christmas Collection catalogue, which oh, they keep sending to us. Oh, Christmas Collection catalogue. Oh. Um, Oh, if only anyone in the world loved me and didn't know what to get me. <laughs> so if you love Dell, you... <laughs> so contact us. That <laughs> so donations too. <laughs> one of the things they've done is they've done the Hitchhiker's Guide for Galaxy as a as a, as a folio edition, and it's the entire thing. Oh right, not just that one before. We we haven't. Well, I've just opened it accidentally. No, it was June, wasn't it? it was I, June, really I accidentally yeah. opened it on the iRobot. Uh, version Ooh. that's very pretty but um yeah books as things or there we go there's the so long thanks for all the fish has a picture of blue dolphins on the front mostly mm-hmm. harmless has a picture of Fen- is that Fenchurch? or is it his daughter be. is it uh, random yeah I think it might be random we, we've suddenly well, both of the legs are touching the ground <laughs> touching the ground I think so it's not random it's not yeah well, well yes but it's also an illustration so but to be well, honest, though, yeah. I was, it's it's November. This is a Christmas catalogue. If you have a bibliophile in your life and you don't know what to get them, and you can't get them Waterstones vouchers for the the fifth year running, um, maybe have a look at this sort of thing. Um, they, I don't think I've seen one for under thirty pounds yet. But cons- I know this is radio, and we can't show you these products. But these books are beautiful. This is something that anyone that receives this is going to look after and understand is a beautiful present for forever. It's not you're not just buying them a standard kind of mass produced paperback. There's visual thought into literally every single one of these. It's it's one of those things where I think it's the thing about gifts, isn't it? Books as gifts. Mm. Is that I found one for twenty-five. Hey, which one is it? Um, Manhattan forty-five. Oh yes, I think we've got slightly different catalogs. Well, there's a vision, vision of Kim here, uh, but, but there's that thing of um, it's when you decide to give a book as a gift because I tend to I tend to not lend books. I just give them because because yeah. you know, you just give books. People don't give them back, so I might as well just give you one. 
and that's fine. Um, I, I do I do occasionally do the naughty thing of saying, here's a book, and when you finish with it, give it to someone else. Mm. Because it's like, you, you are giving it away, but you're also putting it into circulation. Yeah. Um, whereas if you buy um, a really pretty version of a book, and it's like hardback, and it's, you know, slip-covered case, that's a book that you don't expect to be given away. Yeah. That's definitely a gift. Um, or something that you... you no, I, I don't think anyone in the world goes into someone's house, looks at their bookshelf, looks at the heavy slip-bound slip signed edition of a book and going, can I borrow this? Yeah. No, you can't borrow that yeah. one. That's definitely... That's been installed in my house, so <laughs> I can enjoy it at any time. Um, whereas, you know, because I've got plenty of signed books that are paperbacks, and occasionally friends of mine will be like, can I borrow this? And they'll open it and go, oh, it's signed. And it's like, yeah, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. It's fine. I always feel a bit guilty about getting books autographed because it means I can't give them away. I'm fine with that because I'm such a book hoarder. I really, I think I've said before, like I really attach a piece of myself to the physical book that I read. It's like this one was my book and this is the one that that has my soul. But at the same time, I do still collect books. Like I have several copies of the same book simply because I'm like, this one's pretty. But I would always read the one I originally read. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very much the same and. I think I have I have many battered paperbacks mm. that I don't want to give away because they're so battered. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have done the thing in the past where someone's gone, um, can I borrow this book? And I'm like, I'm embarrassed by the state of this book. And then gone, how give me? And I've gone out, bought someone the same book, just giving it to them as a gift because I want them to read the book. But I felt slightly guilty that I've not been able to give away that one because the cover's falling off and yeah. it smells funny. Well, the difficulty I have as well is my books are all pristine. They look this, exactly the same after being read five times as they did when I bought them. Um, I'm so careful. Like I hold my books in a specific way so I don't crinkle anything. Um, everything is perfect. I'm really sorry, Ed. Ed looks really sad. Um, but that means actually lending books is very difficult because not only is it like I don't want to be the person that's like, don't hurt my book. But I think a lot of my friends are my friends and nice people and they wouldn't want to do that anyway but therefore they don't actually enjoy the books as much as they should because they're thinking so much about making sure that they don't like hurt the page or bend the spine and things and so it's kind of also just it's not worth it really i'm a monster <laughs> yeah yeah I, I've, I've been able to do this as well i am a monster and i do try not to hurt books but do Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's that difference where you have like a specific book that's precious in a certain way, um, and you look after it as best you can. And then there's sometimes sometimes it's very easy to look after a book, and sometimes it's not. Um, one of the ones that made me a little bit sad was is when you're at book fairs and book cons. Yeah. And it's like it's impossible to get. It's impossible for me to get through a book fair and a book con, and I might have you know an arc produced first edition fresh off the printer it was bound in the offices of that particular place and they only made 20 of them so they could send them out through reviewers and I'll have it and I'll have it because I want to get it signed and uh, lo and behold it'll get dinged because it'll get dinged because I'm at a boot convention and it will get dinged and as as careful as you can be it'll get dinged but I don't care because it's mine and yeah. that's why it's been signed but um, if you want I so, can teach you how to carefully put books in your bag and keep them safe forever because I'm very good at it yeah, so this isn't, <laughs> this isn't quite what I meant when, when 
I thought I'm I'm not good at books. I've, I'm good at books, and since I read this, and yeah, the, by the time I've book is finished, finished the, the the spine of the paperback does look like it's been cracked slightly, and that's that's through active use rather than just because it was in a bag, careful, carelessly in a bag. So I think we might mean slightly different things. I mean, I, mean, I don't fold you know, I don't fold corners to mark places or anything. I just that's it's just just monstrous. Yeah, I know. I don't do that. That's, it's just that the spine just at some point. I mean, I wasn't keeping track of it. It went at some point. I wasn't, you know, paying attention, and clearly at some point it bent. Well, I because I have multiple copies of the Hanging Tree. Um, I don't anymore, but I had multiple copies of the Hanging Tree, and I had this weird moment where one review copy that had been sent to me had a had a had a tea accident. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was just like, no! Uh, oh no, I can give it to this person and they won't care. I don't know what I'd do. Like, cause I... No, no, you're upset, but you just get on with it because you've got to finish reading the book. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'd have a cry and then maybe carry on reading the book. It's like I read in the bath and people are like, oh, what if you book, drop your book in the bath? It's like, I'm not going to drop my book in the bath. Producer Al had, um, you know how she's a, fan of, a big fan of. Kerry Greenwood. Yes. So she had a Kerry Greenwood book that had been exported from Australia, Ooh. from the Australian press, where they're made, and then she you was our teeth are on edge. And then she was caught in a thunderstorm. No. And the bag was in a cloth bag, and even if oh. even though it was in, even though it was in a little plastic baggie, it oh. was such a thunderstorm. That's so sad. Like I'm so sad. Eight hours, Del. Eight hours with with a hairdryer uh, and and presses. Carefully oh. drying each page. It's only slightly crinkly now. Oh, I'd I'd still cry. I'd like. I think I think she's done a fantastic job, and that is a lot of patience to keep that book safe. Oh, it wasn't producer Al who did that. It was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you was, you was, caused the thunderstorm. I was told in no certain, certain terms to fix it. So yeah. I did. Save it. Save it. Save it. Save it. Um, I, I know quite a bit about how books are bound and put together, actually, because I've had enough precious, precious books fall apart on me for various reasons. Mm. Which is just a hazard, hazard of the fact that I, I live a life with so many books in them, um, that you you just learn, and also because I'm in publishing, you just learn how, yeah. how things are found. But um, I have got better, but if I think a book is precious, it is precious, um, and nothing will ever happen to it ever. Shall we talk to a lovely author? A lovely author. Three. Nick Abnett, welcome to Brave New Words. Hello. So. What can you tell us about your novel, Savant? Oh, gosh. Um, It's a story about characters and relationships and people enduring, I guess. Why a science fiction sort of dystopian novel? Yeah, I don't really think about it as science fiction, though. I just think of it as the next story. I mean, it clearly is SF. I would never claim that it wasn't. But it's not. When I start to write, it's not my intention to write in a particular medium. Where did the idea for a dystopian novel come from? Um, I don't think it started out in my head as dystopian. It may have become a little bit that way. Although I think ultimately the message of the book is hopeful. Um, And where did it come from? It came pretty well wholesale once I had characters. Torb and Meteor are very interesting characters. Uh, and the the principal uh, protagonists of a savant 
Where did they come from? What did you draw the inspiration from? They come from the extremes. They come from, from the most intellectual in us and the most emotional in us. There's a, there's a Descartian thing with their names. That's where it kind of started. Um, I think, therefore, I am. Um, and he's called To Be because he's a thinker. And her name is Me Too. You need me. The thinking isn't everything. Does that make any sense? Reading the book, I never caught that pun. How much did that form the novel? Well, no, it, because that's where, it, that's where starting points come from, and I don't plan novels. So that becomes incidental, it, and it kind of becomes a joke to me because I know it's there. But it isn't necessarily deeply in the structure of the book. That's part of the process, to get away from your first thoughts. We all dip straight into the world, and there isn't really much of an explanation until much later in the book. Why that approach? Um, I didn't want to patronise the reader, I think. I think it's a little condescending. I think putting everything there on the page can be a little bit patronising. I like to think when I'm reading, and I like to make those pictures in my head, and I like to make those connections. And I assume that there are other readers out there who also like to do those things. So I like to leave rooms for that. Also, you can spend an awful lot of time building a world, but if it's not, it, if it's not inhabited by real people doing real things, then it all becomes a little bit pointless. Is academia like that? It seems to be a very academic world, the world of Savant. I think it's partly drawn from the, cap- from the fact that I spent four years on a campus university, which isn't very common in the UK. Um, and things like school bells, remembering the, the pips going at school, um, and all of those kind of things from my childhood definitely fed into that, that kind of very structured world. I had a very structured world living in a grammar school for six years or however long it was, and then I had quite a structured world at university and I think you want to return to those things as you get older you do look back on those things um somewhat fondly but also you all of that routine and all of that structure for somebody who essentially doesn't have any anymore is uh, is quite quite nice to revisit that so I think it was based around that kind of feeling so what's next another story about people <laughs> it is SF I mean it's the same universe as this one so, so yes, it's SF. Um, I don't know how much I should tell you about it because it's so early on. I don't know how much it's going to change over the next six or eight weeks while I'm writing it. Um, but it's if this book is social, I guess the next one's kind of about social politics and about gender politics a little bit, the sorts of things that I write about a lot. Is science fiction and genre publishing in general as diverse and as accepting as it wants to be? Sometimes. Rather depends who you're reading. Um, That's a really difficult and complicated question because I'm a woman and we can't get books published and we can't get stories read and and there are perspectives attached to those things. And and when you do what I do and when you've done as much time fiction as I have, you understand that inside the world, the other writers, there is essentially no sense that you are other from a creative point of view we're kind of all equal and I don't think I'm seen by other SF writers as anything other than a writer um outside of that 
you know, whether you choose to put your female name on the front of a book and, you know, whether you approach things in that way or whether you're belligerent about it. It doesn't seem to make very much difference as to success. And and it's not just gender. I mean, it's it, the race thing is an absolute minefield in SF. Um, and in all writing, I think, because if you choose to use uh, characters of other races or if you choose to set your novel in a world that's maybe based around a culture that you've had to research rather than live in, you know, it's, it's lovely to have a multitude of different characters from different places. And I have that in Savant as well. It's a global book, I think. Um, but appropriation is such a terrible thing that you do find yourself kind of thinking about those things. I mean, my thing is gender politics, so I do bang on about that. And actually, Savant's an interesting example of where I haven't used gender politics at all because I was expecting quite a lot of the reader along the way. Um, the the gender's quite stereotyped. And, uh, and there were times when I wanted not to do that, but I was aware that I didn't get, I really didn't want to give the reader another thing to think about. Um, which is probably why I'm doing it in the second book a little bit. Um, but the answer to the question is, is there are so many ideas in SF and there, are, and there is so much good in it. Um, but when we lack the imagination to talk about gender or to talk about race or, or to, he, to even include those things in what we're writing, then, then I think we have to look at that, definitely. What's your favourite novel? Generally, whatever I'm reading at the moment and enjoying. I mean, there are there are old favourites, um, but they're from across the board. They're not necessarily all from from gender, from SF. Um, and I go back and and love to read older things as well. Um, I dip into the classics now and again. But it's not a, it's, you get inspiration from everywhere, from movies and music and art and cooking and sewing and you know I'm a maker so I get inspiration from all over the place um a big fan of Adam Roberts at the moment loving his last few books if you could rescue one piece of art um or creative work and have that survive until the end of all things what would it be it would probably it would probably be a Howard Hodgkin painting you've done a lot of tie-in fiction is there any franchise that you'd like to write for that you haven't yet done so i'm going to lose myself work by saying this because i i sort of feel as though i'm done playing in other people's sandwiches i've done a lot of it um and as you can tell from savant it's not the kind of thing that i do for myself i do it because i can do it and i and i do love it and i love collaborating i love working with other people um and and sometimes i have try to get in there and change things a little bit particularly with Warhammer as we were talking about before some of the short stories that I've done for them have been very political and have been gendered and have been all of those sorts of things um, I don't have a huge desire to write shoot to death kill in space I always want to write those very character driven very personal things so when it comes to research I have to do a lot of research to bring myself up to speed on arms and armaments and combat styles and all of those kinds of things, which is great fun. Um, but it's when I'm spending more time looking at those things than I am creating characters and situations, that's quite hard work. So for anybody who wants to employ me and give me work in their IPs, I'd be really happy. Simpsons or Futurama? 
See, I make myself unpopular every touch and turn. I never could stand The Simpsons. I'm sorry. It was never my thing. I watched hundreds of episodes because the whole of the rest of the family loved it. And there were times when I laughed, but mostly it drove me nuts. So, Futurama, thank you. Science or magic? Magic. Everything's magic. Science is magic. Monsters or mazes? Monsters. Can't stand getting lost. Truth or beauty? Oh, truth. Every time. All the time. Without truth, there's no beauty. Nick, Vincent, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ed. I've enjoyed it. They were lovely. I think we've run out of show. Shall we go? Uh, Yeah, we can do. Okay, so it's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And please like, subscribe, share, um, or you know, send us horrible emails at Radio Bookman. Uh, have fun, take care.